Welcome to Alaskwatch, the show all about Bigfoot in the great state of Alaska. I'm your host, Beans Baxter. So lace up your boots, zip up your coat, and come with me on an adventure as we explore all things cryptid in the last frontier. everybody i am here with alaskan author and i'm assuming born and raised alaskan uh jesse desmond and we are here to talk about her new book uh, on the topic of ufos saucers of the north a history of ufos in alaskan airspace i just uh finished this last night i got a copy over the weekend and and kind of buzzed through it i had to i had to read it pretty quick because uh, i wanted to get done with it before this interview uh, but we're here with her, and we're going to talk about this book and UFOs in Alaska. Uh, welcome to Alaska Watch, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> and I, you know, I know it is kind of a it's kind of a thicker book. It's almost three hundred pages. It's uh, it's substantial. I was even though I had read the title of the book. It's, it says a history of UFOs in Alaskan airspace. Uh, when I got it and sat down with it and started to go through it, I was kind of surprised, like. It goes back. It starts in the 1700s. Yeah. And there, there's, uh, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, UFOs are not my thing. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the subject, but I don't really uh, pursue it as much as I used to. Uh, it was kind of something I was really into when I was younger. But uh, there's a lot of information in here because I, I consider myself, you know, I'm not an expert, like I said, on UFOs, but I'm well versed in the subject of UFOs. Uh, but there was so much in here that I had no idea about or had never heard of. Uh, I was a little, I was a little surprised. It looks like there's a ton of research that went into this. Yeah, it. This book, I mean, I, I really started on it, on it about just over a year ago. Uh, but I've been collecting stories and stuff like that for a long time. Uh, I was at one point the uh, state director for MUFON up here. And then I got kind of busy <laughs> and you know how things go. It's a volunteer thing. So you cut out the volunteer stuff so you can focus on other things. Um, so I'm, I didn't just start last year, but I started writing the book last year, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I um, often get contacted by people who for some reason equate, you know, they, they think, well, this guy's into Bigfoot. He'll, he'll want to know about my UFO sighting. And, um, I, I don't mind listening, but I often will say like, well, Hey, can you contact Jesse? She's the UFO person. <laughs> so I try and refer people to you when I get UFO sightings. Um, but, uh, yeah, let, let's talk about some of the early stuff in here, like the 1700s. Okay. Uh, a lot of that stuff that comes from native legends, native lore. Um, where, where did you dig up a lot of those stories? Uh, okay, so in the book, it starts out in the 1700s because that's when Russia occupied the Alaska area. And so I wanted to start there because that's that's basically where a lot of Alaska history starts because before then, we really didn't get a lot of written history. Um, and I don't want to call it prehistory it just wasn't really explored um, too right. much. Uh, and then, then it goes into the Alaska native stuff. Um, 
And those just came from, I was like looking at Alaska Mythos books and I came across a whole bunch of these stories and I was like, man, that just doesn't sit right with me. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, there's a, here's a story of like these kids who they're out, out at night with a bow and arrow and they're playing and whatever. And, and the moon comes down and they shoot arrows at the moon. And I was like, that's just weird, you know? And, and there, there are other stories like that in here uh, because that moons don't come down, <laughs> you know, people don't get into a, into a basket and go up to meet like a moon man or something, yeah. but they do that in these native stories. So I don't, it just, maybe I was watching ancient aliens or something and it's something just clicked, you know, with like ancient mythos and these stories are just, uh, most people don't know about them except for maybe Alaska natives. Yeah. One of the ones, or there was two that were kind of similar that really stuck with me was um, uh, stories about people that were taken and they were in a place. And I think there was two different stories where they said they lifted up a rock and they could see like the ground below them. Like they could see down below. And uh, I was thinking about that and I was like, man, what if you'd never seen like, Cause it sounds kind of weird. Like, well, I lift, they lifted up a rock and they could see down to the ground. Like the ground was below them. And I was like, well, if you've never seen like a porthole or like a trap door made out of metal, what well, and you know, maybe you just say, well, that's a rock. It's, it's big and it's hard. You know, it's a hard surface. It's a rock, but maybe it's like a metal covering or something like that. Uh, but those, those were like some, to me, seem like some really early accounts of like abduction. Yeah, and and like one of them, there's one called uh, the Star Husband. Um, this this woman, like, she kind of gets taken. She gets put into this basket, and then there's a whooshing sound, and she's told not to look outside um, until they get to where they're going. And there's a whooshing, like great a great rush of air, and then they're in this other place where she's going to meet this moon man or the star, you know, I think he's supposed to be a moon man or uh, son of the moon or there's a, there's a term for it. Let me, I'm looking through my own book to look <laughs> up the details. Uh, yeah. And she, she ends up, uh, you know, there, there's like food readily available. They're like, if you want something, just let us know. We'll get it for you. If you want clothes, let us know. We'll get it for you. Uh, which seems, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And so my first thought was, does this, do these people have like replicator? <laughs> they can just replicate food or clothing or whatever. And then um, she she meets like this, this star man or moon man or whatever. And uh, they end up, having a kid and then she visits her village and the villagers reject uh this baby because it they know it's some kind of hybrid and they they're like that's that's not one of us and she leaves and goes back with the with the moon man guy <laughs> uh and then there's associations of this moon 
character with uh, with the eagle man. So sometimes you see like depictions of like a humanoid eagle man, and it's supposed to be similar to this moon man. Yeah. Well, I wonder if they get that that name not because they look like a bird, but because they come from the sky. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really uh, detailed book with, you know, I was surprised to see how far back it goes um, and just how everybody that, you know, lives in Alaska, the, 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 the natives, the Russians, you know, the white man, we all seem to be seeing things in the sky and interacting with things that come down from the sky. And um, it makes, it really uh, makes Alaska seem like it's really a UFO hotspot, which uh, I, I guess it is. We. Yeah. We, we are kind of a hot spot, but uh, I think the majority of the sightings don't really get reported to uh, La Mufon or New Fork or something. Just, just because I feel like that's kind of the nature of Alaskans, to be a little leery of, of anyone who's collecting stories because they're not one of us. You, you know, it's like this whole yeah. mentality. Yeah. That's well, the same thing with uh, with Bigfoot stories. You know, if, if you start... If you go around and start talking to people about Bigfoot, everybody either has a story or knows someone that has a story. And it's the same way with UFOs. Or they'll say like, no, I've never seen a Bigfoot, but I've seen, you know, a UFO. On on Facebook, I I created this page a couple years ago and it's called Alaska UFOs. And I, I thought maybe I'd have, you know, maybe up to like 50 or 80 or something people. And we have... We're up in the thousands of people now, and it's just just for Alaska residents, pretty much, or people who regular regularly come up to Alaska. Um, we kind of let in Canadians too, <laughs> uh, and it's just it's just about UFO sightings. And sometimes it is like on a daily basis. People are posting pictures and video and stuff, so it's things are going on, and. It, They'll, they'll report them and they'll send stuff in on Facebook, but they won't do it for MUFON or New Fork. And I had yeah. I, I had a, a conversation with Peter Davenport about that this summer too. Yeah, I think there's probably some hesitation to come forward. And, and you know, once something becomes like a, um, I don't want to say a corporation, but basically, you know, it's a it's an organization. I think people are a little uh, untrustworthy of, of things like that. Um, it's kind of the, I mean, look at the reputation that BFRO has in the in the Bigfoot community. You know, it's it went from you know like basically the only organization uh, where you could report stuff to now people are like you know a lot of people in the community just don't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, I think probably it's this, I mean, I don't know for experience, but I think probably it's the same maybe in the, in the UFO community. And a lot of these entities that have been around for a long time, uh, like New Fork and, and MUFON, uh, a lot of people kind of look at them as like, well, they're just, you know, it's, it's a corporation now. It's not really a, a group and they're here, you know, to, to collect uh, information and then, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays within the group and they don't really do anything with it. Okay, well, let me let me touch on that real quick. Okay, so MUFON has been around since 1969, and it was formed by a group of academics uh, who realized that the Air Force was ending Project Blue Book, but there were still things that needed to be uh, reported and investigated and stuff. And so they formed MUFON, and it's not a government organization. Uh, 
it's actually there's some people who get paid, but um, they're all the real higher ups in there and everyone else, state directors, uh, field investigators, anyone like that. uh, That's all volunteer work, you know, and so it's these volunteers, you go through a training thing and you learn how to take reports and learn how to investigate and all that kind of stuff. It's really a good program if you want to get your toes wet in the field of ufology. Um, I would highly recommend it just because they have a whole system and all the data that they want you to collect is important data that's needed for any investigator. Do you think there's any uh, government agents uh, embedded in with, with those agencies? Oh, sure. There's probably, there's probably <laughs> a few. Um, yeah. I went, that, that was, that was kind of my point. All. It was, I think some, <laughs> there's some people who are untrustworthy of the, or distrustful of those because they probably think that they've been around so long. They're probably uh, crawling with government agents. <laughs> I, I'm sure there are a lot of them are, uh, you have citizen scientists in there, you have pilots, you have uh, academics in there as well. You have students, you have, there's all, there's all kinds of people. Um, but still, I mean, that everyone is everyone is uh, taught the same way on how to investigate all the UFO stuff. Um, if you have questions, it's a good group to uh, reach out to if you're a member, because then you can learn how to use equipment. You can you can ask questions, you know, all that kind of thing. And so New Fork, which is the National UFO Reporting Center, is Washington based, like Washington State base mm-hmm. uh, and it's run by peter davenport and i think he has one person working with him to help him out with his website um it's kind of like his hobby um he, so he he's not fast at at getting stuff out but he does go through everything and he he gets like hundreds and hundreds of phone calls and emails and stuff every day about all this stuff. It took me like a month or so just to get in touch with him. And I, I had to leave like a billion emails and <laughs> phone calls and stuff. Yeah. I believe he, he's got quite a bit uh, on there. Um, quite a few sightings from Alaska and even from the, the Kenai Peninsula here. I think the last time I looked uh, at the New Fork site, there was a quite a few from the Kenai Peninsula on there, which are the ones that, you know, because that's my geographical area I'm, I'm most interested in. Although I think a lot of them, uh, especially anything, I mean, and this is my opinion, uh, a lot of times anything that's kind of described as a fireball or something that comes down, I'm thinking like that's a flare. Cause I mean, we're right here on Kachemak Bay. Uh, there's a lot of vessels that are always sending up flares and stuff. Uh, a lot of Coast Guard training goes on here. And um, I remember when I was uh, working at the police department, we'd always get notifications like, hey, uh, tomorrow night they're going to shoot off a bunch of flares for you know whatever training or whatever they're having. And um, I think that, uh, you know, and, there, and there's not really a lot of uh, documentation that goes into that as far as like when we get those notifications. So if somebody was to um, report like, oh, I saw this, you know, coming out of the sky and it didn't say there was like a delay in reporting where it didn't get reported, you know, for maybe a few weeks or months after the fact. Then you call like the local police department or something. Hey, was there any training or something going on there? Well, there wouldn't have been really any documentation of that. There probably, there might've been a note or an email or something passed around that said, Hey, there's going to be some flares in the Bay tomorrow or something, but it wouldn't be 
like something where you could go back into the reporting system and look and say like, oh yeah, there was some training going on there. So I, I don't know. That's my opinion on a lot of the fireballs that uh, get seen, especially around Kachemak Bay. And um, although I did see some really cool stuff when readout blue and was it 2009, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of like lightning and like different colored flashes in the sky that I'd never seen a volcano erupt before. And uh, that, that was pretty interesting to just see what all that can do. I never really thought about it. I thought, okay, the volcano is going to blow. There's going to be lava come out of it and that's going to be it. But in, actually there's a lot of stuff that goes on with that. Like a lot of aerial phenomenon with the different colors and lightning and flashes in the sky. Yeah. We, I'm in Fairbanks and we don't really have a, a volcano and visual <laughs> insight. <laughs> so I can't really watch that, but that'd be really cool to watch. Um, I mean, I've seen volcanoes that have spewed some lava and there's lava coming down like in Hawaii, but they're not, it's not like blowing stuff out at that point. So I noticed, um, the ones that really captivated me were, there were a few, uh, sightings in the book where that kind of, they didn't go into detail, but they alluded to abduction and a lot of them said, would say something like, well, there was a flash of light and then it was like four hours later or the person, you know, the trip took, you know, it was supposed to take an hour and it took four hours or something like that. And, um, do you think that there's a lot of, uh, abductions like that, that don't get necessarily, um, I don't want to say reported, but, um, the people just don't remember them. And, you know, they think, well, there's, there was a, you know, oh, I must've zoned out and and now it's, you know, two hours later than I thought it was. I mean, everybody kind of has those little moments where you lose a little time here and there, but. uh, Uh, Okay. So when I was in MUFON, there were, there were a couple of abduction things that came through, uh, which I was, I'm not at liberty to repeat. Uh, I mean, I can probably briefly mention them, but I wasn't comfortable putting them in the book because I, they wanted to remain, uh, anonymous and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's one case where, uh, where this person had like, uh, he felt, he found like a metal piece in him, like an implant. Um, the problem is, I think it was John Lear, John Lear, Dr. John Lear, uh, was the one who was removing and studying the implants, but he passed away a couple years ago. So now there's, I don't really know who's doing, who's studying implants. So I, that was a tough one because I, I didn't know who to refer this person to. Yeah. I possible. I think it, it's very possible that there might be a lot of, abductions out there that just don't get reported because they'll go, Hey, uh, people are going to think I'm crazy or something. If I, if I mention this, and I think that's probably what's keeping us from hearing a lot of abduction stories. Yeah. There's definitely kind of a stigma that goes along with that. I remember, uh, when communion first came out, I remember seeing the book cover and just like, I, I gotta admit, I I was uh, one of those kids. I was scared of ET you know, the, the movie, I I just, I didn't like ET at all. And when communion came out and I kind of became aware of it, it, I was, uh, that's like one of my things that I'm 
scared of is the the aliens, like the gray aliens, especially like, and something coming into your house that you can't really do anything about. That's just, that's like, uh, I'm surprised there's not more abduction themed horror movies. Um, it, it just seems like it's something that's really, really scary that something can do that and just have that kind of control over you. And there's not really anything you can do about it. And I, I think it's hard to get that across in a film like, yeah, because there's a lot of feeling or something. And I think it's more of like a mental <clears throat> and emotional thing. It's because like fire in the sky, they had, they had, uh, you know, the scene where he's being taken out of it. He's being abducted and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, I know a lot of people are all about it, but I was just like, like it, it didn't scare me. Like, I guess other people, like it scared other people. Yeah. You know I thought I mean? fire in the sky was, was pretty scary. Have you, have you met Travis? I have not met Travis. No, I met him. I've, um, I've heard him on coast to coast. <laughs> yeah. I met him a few years ago and there's just, I mean, he's a, he's a big guy. He's bigger than I am. Really? And, uh, well, taller, he's taller than I am. And, um, he, he was just, you know, I, I just spoke with him briefly, you know, just kind of like shook his hand. Hey, you know, how you doing? And, um, I just thought, I just, I just thought when I met him, I was like, man, there's something kind of, something just kind of off about him. And I couldn't really put my finger on it. And I heard, uh, I think it was, it was Mark Matsky from, uh, small town monsters from, from, um, uh, Sasquatch. And, uh, he was talking about meeting him. I think he met him actually at the same event that I met him at. And, uh, he described him. He said, there's something very, he said, there's something very haunted about him. Like he just seems like a haunt, per, haunted person. And I think that like that hit the nail on the head. Like that's exactly that. That's how I would have described it. Uh, if I had had the words and, um, yeah, he's just, he just seems like, you know, he, he's kind of got that thousand yard stare. Uh, you know, there's just, there's something about him that just seems like he's not always there with you when he's around, you know, and, um, I've, I've heard that from a bunch yeah. of people actually. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, I he's... have met Whitley Streber, <clears throat> excuse me, who did write communion. Uh, I met him at UFO fest this spring <laughs> mm-hmm. and he kind of has a little bit of that too, but I think he's talked more about it and been a little more open about it. Uh, so it's not, probably not as much, you know what I mean? Yeah. But. Yeah. Travis is, uh, he, he's a, he's an interesting guy and he, and I had met him at a Bigfoot conference and when he got there, I was like, man, I'm going to, I think it would be so cool to have a signed copy of fire in the sky. And I was like, I'm going to swing by and get one. And he's like, well, this is a Bigfoot event. So nobody's going to care about UFOs. So he brought like 20 books and he sold out of them in like the first hour. And so I didn't, I didn't get one, but I did get to meet him and, and kind of, you know, say hi, hey to him. But uh, yeah, I was pretty disappointed. I didn't get a, a signed book from him. That would have been really cool. I, yeah. uh, I was supposed to get, <laughs> I took my copy of communion with me to uh, UFO fest and I, Willie Streber was not signing books because he was kind of afraid of getting COVID and he's about to go on vacation. So I missed out on that too. Yeah. Well, he's got to be getting up there too. He's in his yeah. probably seventies, eighties, maybe older. Something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so we talk, there's a lot of 
history in the book. Obviously, well, you're a history buff, right? I have a degree in history. Yeah, I have a and bachelor's degree in history. It, it's kind of evident reading reading through the book. Uh, there's a lot of history, uh, a lot of history of the, um, I guess, the uh, military industrial complex up here in Alaska. Uh, you know, of course, we're a strategic strategic uh, geographic location when it comes to military stuff. So. We've got a lot of bases, uh, a lot of testing facilities up here for cold weather gear, stuff like that. Um, you know, I was a part of that myself for a while. Uh, I've been out in uh, Fort Greeley when it was like 60 below. Uh, not fun. Do not recommend. Um, but uh, I, I had a question for you. What do you think? So strategy aside, uh, geographic, you know, because we're close to Russia and all that, the Cold War. Uh, take that out of the picture. What do you think came first? The, the military, do you think the military put so many bases and stuff like that up here? Because do you think there was any consideration at all for the UFO activity up here? Or do you think it's all completely strategy based uh, for human elements? I think it started out as just being a strategical location, you know, during World War II, um, because Alaska was invaded. <laughs> Most people don't seem to realize that, but but some of our islands got invaded uh, by the Japanese, uh, which I mentioned in the book. And so there's, you know, strategic locations set up for that. And then I think because we had people, you know, people flying in the air and people on ships and stuff like that, uh, who are, who are looking for some sort of enemy, uh, they realize that, oh, there's other things in this area too, because real quick, uh, we got like, we got UFO stuff going on up here. Um, Wendell Stevens, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens, is that right? Uh, let me, let me find my note in my book here. Uh, he was stationed up here in, I want to say the late forties. Sorry. I, I remember like the general dates, but I don't always remember the exact dates. Um, anyway, so he was stationed up here, uh, for a little while out of Elmendorf, which is, uh, that's now J-Bear out of Anchorage and he was in charge of like installing surveillance equipment in the aircraft and like photographic and, and video surveillance equipment. And then they would send out the planes and they would return and he would take all that footage and kind of go through it. And if there's anything of importance, he would clip it and send it out to uh, Brett Patterson. Right. So apparently he saw, a lot of UFOs coming through on his, on the stuff that he was sending out to Pat, sorry, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Um, And that, I think that really started a lot of the UFO stuff up here. Yeah. And Wright Patterson, that is in Ohio, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I believe that's that's also a really major base in case anyone doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's, it's connected to the, uh, Roswell crash. Uh, it's one of those suspected locations where they took 
the either That's the bodies or the saucers. Sent, sent the bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe there's a, uh, is it Hangar 18 or something? I think there's a, it's kind of famous, uh, a famous location for where that stuff might be. I think there's even like a Megadeth song about it or something. Um, yeah. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's Hangar 18. And it really got mentioned in The Day After Roswell, which was a book that came out in the later 90s. Um, I read that when it came out and that was, that was kind of a big game changer for me that that really opened my eyes for Roswell. Yeah. And you know, bringing it back to Alaska, uh, with all the military uh, presence up here, I'm just surprised we don't have more crash stories. I think up here, it seems like that, uh, the UFOs up here seem to be uh, really good at evading our defenses. Um, and it's kind of scary when you think about it. If, if they're not some kind of natural phenomenon like earth lights or earthquake lights or something like that, if they are some kind of craft, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy that, that, uh, you know, all of us in the military with the technology and the, the, just like, that's your job is to keep things from coming here <laughs> that we don't want here. And, uh, they can just seem to, to come in and leave at will. And, um, Again, I keep going back to movies. I'm like, I'm surprised there's not more like horror movies, like UFO horror movies about it. Because when you think about it, it is pretty scary that uh, things can just uh, come and go at will and into people's homes, out of people's homes, stuff like that. Do you think that um, the UFOs, do you think they're attracted to to stuff like that? Like military uh, uh, machines and, and movement just to kind of see like, well, let's see what they got. Let's see what they can do. Well, one, one thing that I was thinking of is, uh, Alaska is a majorly huge area. Like people, people down the States don't really get it. We have so much space up here. Um, and there's only a, there's only a pocket of areas, like just a, just a little bit of space to uh, set aside for like people, you know, otherwise it's all tundra and trees and glaciers and mountains and stuff, you know? And so I think uh, Alaska might be kind of seen as like a safe spot. Like there's not a huge amount of people up here. Uh, They can land the UFOs if they need to, Uh, which Wendell Stevens uh, in some of his photographic and video stuff that he was collecting, uh, he had mentioned the UFOs landing on glaciers and stuff. So, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like just a safe spot because we, we don't have a lot of people. Yeah. That's and one interesting aspect about the book that I, I found was how you can track the, and it's mentioned in the book, how you can track the differences in the kind of craft scene, it kind of starts off with saucers and then uh, evolves into the, the triangles. And do you think that is a, do you think that's maybe just a different species of alien that's coming here? Or do you think their technology has evolved from saucers to triangles? Cause initially, you know, like my, my theory was that the triangles are ours. 
that they're, you know, uh, something that we built, some kind of uh, stealth or secret aircraft. But there's a lot of weird sightings attributed with the triangles too, like with the flashes and the missing time and stuff like that. So that makes me think maybe it's not our ours, uh, something that we made. What, what's your opinion on that? Uh, okay, so for the triangles, there we have two types of triangles. We have two types of triangles. It's mentioned, uh, oh gosh, what, which chapter? It's like the 1980s chapter. Uh, <laughs> This is how my brain works. Uh, chapter five. And so you have the classic TR3B triangle, which is like a equilateral triangle. And underneath there's a light at each corner and then one in the center, right? That's, that's a pretty typical triangle. There's even some photos and stuff of, uh, of that kind of thing in the book. Um, I think those are our military craft. But there's also this really weird elongated, like huge elongated solid black triangle. And I've seen it multiple times up here myself growing up. And it just, there's no lights on it and it just moved real slow. Like it was just taking its time. It's king of the air or whatever. Uh, and I only saw it because it moved it was like kind of cloudy, but there was a full moon and you could see some stars and stuff and it moved past a section of cloud. And I realized that there was something there and then I could kind of notice it, you know? Uh, and it, my first thought was that looks like a completely black star destroyer from star Wars. Like it's that kind of elongated shape. So I don't know what that is. I don't know whose craft that is, but I'm not the only one who's seen it. Um, there's actually quite a few people who've seen that one. Yeah. I read a really interesting theory on, I think it was Reddit or something. So, I mean, take that, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Um, a gentleman was saying that he, and it doesn't explain a lot of the historical sightings either, uh, like pre-World War II. But uh, he made the comment how he thinks that um, a lot of UFO sightings are actually uh, they're actually Japanese because of how their technology seemed like they they seem to be on fire as far as like their technology it was advancing by leaps and bounds you know they have the uh, what is it the the magnetic train or whatever the mag train or whatever they have up there mm -hmm. and it just kind of seemed to stop with that and not really go any further it didn't progress and he and he thinks that they took that technology and started developing it in secret. And they're not because of the treaties from world war two, they're not allowed to have a, a standing army. So they kind of, uh, took that uh, technology and started building in secret, you know, basically spaceships or, you know, like really, at least really technologically advanced, uh, flying machines. And, uh, I never really, never really thought about that. And again, like I said, it doesn't explain the historical sightings from like pre-world war two. But uh, I thought it was an interesting take nonetheless. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, it was something I hadn't heard before. Uh, well, okay. I have something that kind of ties into that. Uh, I don't know if... I don't. I, I, I have never heard of any uh, theory like that, actually, <laughs> where they could be Japanese. Uh, but I'm sure you've heard of Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. And we, we've uh, had a number of... Foo Fighter sightings up here in Alaska, uh, of course, right around World War II. Um, 
And so I thought that was really interesting. Those were noted, um, I want to say in Project Blue Book. I might have pulled the, some of those from, uh, there's, this, there's this website, it's uh, Project 1947. And I think they had a couple of those listed as well. So kind of a mixture. Um, but I mean, it's all backed up with military documents like Project Blue Book, obviously, Project Grudge, Project Sign. Uh, that's all government stuff. And then uh, Project 1947 is a website if you want to look that up. And uh, they they have just massive amounts of government documents that they've been gathering. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't realize, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit before about how involved Alaska was with the, the second world world war. And there was actually some ground fighting that went on here. Um, the, f the f first ship, the, the boat that we took to Port Chatham, the Puckuck, they actually do in the summers, they do like a world war two, uh, Aleutian islands tour where they take people around like people that are interested in history. They take them around to the Aleutian islands and show them where the battles were fought and all that. And, um, I thought, I thought that was pretty cool. And, um, then, uh, the first place that I worked as, um, as law enforcement on uh, St. Paul Island, uh, during world war II, the natives from St. Paul were actually rounded up and, uh, taken off the Island and placed, you know, in, in camps, uh, because they were afraid that the Japanese were going to invade the purple off islands. So, uh, Alaska actually has a pretty interesting history when it comes to world war II that a lot of people aren't aware of. Even people that are like world war II history buffs, uh, really don't, don't seem to realize how much uh, Alaska was involved in world war II. Actually, I know that I have a history, history background, but my world war II's, uh, knowledge is mainly European based. Uh, the, I'm not really totally familiar with a lot of the Pacific, um, side of things for that, except for, you know, Alaska history, <laughs> Alaska world war II history. Yeah. Well, same here. And, you know, there seems to be, I mean, my knowledge of world war II is pretty much, you know, movies, uh, band of brothers, stuff like that. But, um, I think I might even have the Pacific, on DVD and I've never sat down and watched it. It's like the sequel to Brand band of brothers that covers the war in the Pacific. And, uh, I've never, I've never really sat down and, and, uh, watched it. And there's a really cool, uh, story about how, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's that place where the Japanese did all those weird experiments and stuff. And they were like tortured people. I, there's a name for it. I can't remember what it is. Uh, it like apparently, it's island, right? Yeah. Well, apparently, yeah. uh, the the pre George Bush the first George I think it was H W Bush was he the first one the first Bush the elder yeah. Bush apparently he was like this close and I'm using my my teeny fingers he was this close uh, to getting captured uh, near that island like he got shot down near there and um, they were after him like the Japanese that were patrolling the area were after him and he got rescued before he got picked up so he almost ended up in that uh, in that laboratory. I wouldn't want to be in that laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, well, it's a good thing that he, uh, I guess, didn't didn't get taken there. Um, let's see here. Okay, so one thing I really want to touch on is that 
what happened with World War II in Alaska, because they, they were like, hey, we need Alaska to be a state. We need it uh, as a strategic location. They set up all these radar systems, right? And it started right after World War II. Um, so we had like the dew line. Uh, we had the White Alice communications system, uh, which is wax. <laughs> we have BMUs, which is ballistic missile early warning system. We have the ACNW, which is, um, oh gosh, I think it's like air, aircraft. It's just an early warning system. <laughs> it's another early warning system. We have, we have like a bunch of these things. Um, and we actually had one on a hill uh, on Murphy Dome, uh, which is right outside of Fairbanks here. And we still have one radome, which is like, it looks like a golf ball on mm -hmm. top of a building. And so we have one of those still out there, which is gated. So don't break in because it's Air Force owned. <laughs> um, and because we had all these radar systems set up, uh, what I found, I was able to track down all this information on something called Project Pinball, which took place in the 50s. And the, the Air Force used uh, the radar systems to track not only foreign aircraft, but UFOs over Alaskan airspace. And because I, I started finding all this information and stuff, and I had to ask a lot of people for assistance <laughs> and I get FOIA requests and, and it took so long to wade through all that information. Um, like the 1950s is its own chapter in this book, just because there's so much that goes into it. Um, that was a really big year for UFOs in Alaska, not to mention the very first feature film with, that involved UFOs, uh, was filmed in Alaska and took place in Alaska because the guy who wrote it and directed and acted in it, uh, Mikhail Conrad, he had been up here in like 1948 to film something called Arctic Manhunt when he said that he witnessed uh, UFOs in Alaska. And so then he wanted to make a movie about it. So it's kind of a spy film, but also UFOs. Yeah, I believe there's a, there's a picture of the movie poster in the book. There is, yeah. Yeah, there's a ton of pictures in the book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, newspaper more. articles. There's pictures of UFOs. There's some cool pictures of uh, lights in the sky. There's a really cool picture of a triangle. Um, there, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a really comprehensive book. There's a lot of stuff in here. Um, I think. Personally, my favorite story out of the whole thing is the one about the uh, the mass casualty event with the the animals and finding the the animals in the in the circle. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, that was something I was holding on to because I I found it in this old UFO magazine um, from like the late seventies, and let me let me pull it up so it's like right in front of me in this. In this thing okay so this uh it was out of a the december 1978 issue of ideals ufo magazine 
the author was John Love, and he actually made a trip up to Alaska to collect stories to see what he could to see what he could find. Um, so on his way on his way up, he he ran into uh, a National Park Service ranger at, aboard a ferry, and they had they had seen some UFOs and stuff and the, like UFOs dipping down into the water. And we have a lot of UFO sightings from ferries and cruises. So, you know, if you ever want to uh, see something, you have a pretty good chance from a ferry or an Alaskan cruise. Uh, anyway, so uh, there were, there were a group of five, yeah, five, uh, grad students. I think they're all from like Columbia or most of them are from Columbia or something, uh, university in New York. So they were up, they were up hiking around kind of out in the boonies for like about a month. And they were outside of Eagle, which is kind of near the Alaska Canadian border. And one of them woke up one morning, they were kind of camped out on a ridge, looked out and there was multiple UFOs in the sky and one, he saw one rising up from like the valley below. Uh, and he woke up the others said, Hey, we can, we can hike down there and see what's up. Right. And so they walked down to this site. Uh, and there was like a circular area where the natural grasses and, and stuff were all kind of swirled and pressed down. Uh, there were, with like four, four triangular leg sites, I guess. Like if you imagine like a disc with legs coming out of it. Um, and then there were a number of different carcasses and stuff uh, in the area. So there, there was like a little bit of that angel hair filament that they found. And I think the majority of the angel hair filament stories comes out of like Washington and Idaho. So I, I really don't hear about it too much up here. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, there were, there was a grizzly bear carcass and I think that was missing its paws and its, right, it's so eyes or teeth. I don't remember. Yeah. Something like I think that. It was a, maybe the eyes, eyes and the paws were missing. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, there was a grizzly and a grizzly cub right so there's two of them and then there was bodies of caribou and elk uh, i think there was some moose as well and then there was a juvenile whale carcass which is the weirdest out of all of those um we we don't really have elk up here <laughs> so uh i mean we have some deer we have like some sitka deer or something but uh, that's only located uh, on Sitka or at Sitka. And then uh, we don't really have elk because when you think elk, you think of like these big, you know, father of Bambi kind of elk, right? Yeah. Well, I wonder if they, yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> oh, here we go. The elk had no internal organs. And then the the whale was a, it was a killer whale. It was 15 feet long or so. And it, 
if you look at a map of Alaska, Eagle, and you just draw a straight line from the ocean to uh, Eagle, it's like 400 miles. So, I mean, because it's, it's inland. <laughs> and so there's no way a whale's going to just magically go up there. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting because, like, the park ranger had seen these UFOs, like, scoop stuff up from, from the water. I, I just think that's pretty interesting. So, I don't know. There's a, they found, like, some weird rocks that got, ended up getting confiscated uh when they when they were trying to fly back they kind of opened up their luggage and the these weird rocks uh were gone so at, mm-hmm. one of the students was a geology grad student so he was going to study the rocks at columbia um which is mentioned all in the book so. yeah that's a fascinating story i i, I just that's one that's a head scratcher right there like if that's true that's amazing because well i mean you've got a well you know, 400 miles from the ocean in the middle of the woods. I I really feel like I don't want to give it all away, but it's still, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting whether, whether you read it for, you know, again, after hearing me talk about it or, or you read it beforehand. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll say there, there's a diagram in the, in the book of the scene. That's really, that's really cool. Um, Yeah. That's directly out of the magazine. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's almost worth the the price of the book alone. Is hearing about that story. That's that's pretty cool. Well, actually, the, I what I think is kind of an interesting story is this Men in Black story that happened. Sorry, I have it right here. Uh, in two two thousand eighteen, in Anchorage. Yeah. So. I remember um, when that first, or maybe it was you that was telling me about it, and I kind of look. I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical about that one, uh, just because I, I don't I'm know. Really I, sure I watched, what to what's that? I said I'm not really sure what to think about it, but yeah. uh, I mention it anyway because I, all I'm doing with this book is presenting information. Right. I'm I'm not making deductions. I'm not, you know, yeah. Here is a lot of UFO stories and sightings and stuff so people can be the judge for themselves i uh that one i was remember significant. The, the one of them and this is a silly one of the main reasons i'm skeptical is because like because you can go and watch the video online and there's stills from the video in the book and um i was looking at the office where this men and this man in black supposedly came in and I'm looking at the office and I'm like, that doesn't look like any office I've ever seen in Alaska. Cause there's no like Alaskana art on the wall or anything. So I was just like, I don't think that's Alaska, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. It, it's a fascinating story though. Um, and it's an interesting video, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. Did you watch the follow-up video? Yes. Yes. Cause, cause there's actually two videos. Um, the, the security guard uh, who ended up getting fired because he sent this footage in, uh, he sent it into this YouTube channel called Apex TV. And, and Apex TV kind of went through it, you know, step by step <laughs> and analyzed it and stuff. And then, so you have like that part of the footage. And then two or three weeks later, um, they actually got in touch with the, with the lady in the video who went with this weird man in black. 
uh, and they they had like an hour long interview with her. So she ended up having like some weird medical stuff after this man in black and his partner gave her a shot. Oh, hang on. <laughs> dog door, I told you. Yeah, I'm surprised my dogs haven't thrown a fit yet. They must be taking a nap or something. But yeah, I, I there's so much uh, UFO stuff to uh, going on in Alaska. I kind of, I was kind of taken aback by how much information is in the book. I mean, there is a lot of stuff in here, and this isn't all of it. You know, like you were saying, like a lot of stuff doesn't get reported. It doesn't get, um, you know, posted on the internet. It doesn't get people just don't talk about it and. It's, uh, it's kind of, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's almost overwhelming. Um, uh, there's a recent, uh, cattle mutilation up in Delta junction that gets, uh, yeah, talked that, about. I actually postponed the publishing of this book because that <laughs> happened right as I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm done with this book. Yeah. And then, uh, this cow mutilation happened and it's, I only have pictures of the third one and apparently the week before. Uh, there had been two cows that had also been mutilated. And after publishing this book, um, there, there's been incidents of strange moose carcasses. And I don't know if it's a natural thing or if it's hunters or poachers or whatever, but like you'll have like a moose without a head just laying in the woods or there was a moose head with the spinal column attached, like a fully meaty, you know, fur on moose head with a spinal column hanging out with no body. And then there, that was right next to uh, like a completely down to the skeleton uh, moose torso. And it's just like, what is going on? Like that, that moose head that kind of reminded me of like a predator, like ripping out the <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh my God. Uh, so it's just, it's just interesting. Uh, there are some other animal mutilation stories in the book, uh, mostly involving uh, caribou herds that have mysteriously died. Um, and I did talk to Linda Moulton Howe about that. And she's like, oh yeah, that she, she's pretty sure that there's more stuff going on up here than people realize. Yeah. Well, I think that's true for UFOs, Bigfoot, and just about anything else uh, like that. There's so much, like you were saying earlier, there's so much space up here where there's just no people that this is the perfect place to come up to if if you're looking for a place to, to lay low. If you have, uh, you know, the, the means of propulsion to get anywhere on the planet uh, pretty quick, this is a good place to come uh, for some privacy. <laughs> I, I do want to give a quick shout out to Shane Land, who is a, he, he uh, just finished writing a book. Let's see here. Well, I have it somewhere around here. Um, it's not right behind me. I think it's uh, Bigfoot Unclassified. Or I think Unclassified. so. I've, I've got it somewhere around here. Yeah, but I, I, have, I have it. Yeah. I think it's on a different bookshelf. Um, <laughs> and so I know he's a Bigfoot guy, but he, he has a history of, being in the military and military intelligence and stuff. And so he wanted to, he really wanted me to publish this book. Uh, so he kind of gave me a little bit of a push. So I want to say thanks to 
thanks to him. <laughs> and yeah. maybe we can work on more projects because this was supposed to be a precursor to a future project. So we'll see if that happens. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to have Shane on. I've, I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, I know uh, every once in a while I'll hear from him and, and I'll be like, oh man, we need to get together and go squatching. And, it, you know, life gets in the way. Things never happen. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's a cool guy. So uh, I, uh, oh, go ahead. I think, uh, you know, this book, it's, it's pretty conclusive. And, you know, I mean, it goes from the 1700s to the current day. I mean, it's, as far as I know, it's the most, uh, Alaska based sightings and activity, you know, and in, in, in one place, uh, I, I, I would say it's probably right now, as of right now, the definitive history of UFOs in Alaska. Uh, so anybody that's interested in what's that? So I believe it is because yeah. I was, I was looking, I was looking to see what else was out there and you can find, uh, you can find books on harp. You can find, you can find a couple books on the JAL 1628 incident, which happened uh, November 17th, 1986, which is now Alaska UFO day, November 17th. <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably about it. Like, I think we get some mentions in, in a few random books for stuff, but yeah, as far as I know that this is, this is like the new player for you. Alaska UFO books. Yeah. So anybody that's interested in Alaska or UFOs or both, I mean, this is, you got to have it. So where can, uh, where can people pick it up? Oh, uh, they can find it on Amazon. That's sorry, guys. I self publish. I know some people refuse to buy from Amazon, but that's where you're going to find it. Um, unless you find me, unless I do a convention and I do it or a book signing or something. And, and I have never done one of those before <laughs> where I'm Dang. signing books. Um, but this is actually my sixth book. Um, it's my thickest book and I don't know. It's, I don't know what I'm doing next. I have, uh, I have like this one book project that I've been, continually working on and revamping and you know I get so far that I'm like no let me scrap this and start over again and it's uh, that one's on this guy named Count Saint Germain uh, I'm kind of like a leading researcher on the guy just because I've been at it for so long uh, and so writing that kind of book would be like an opus piece you know what I mean <laughs> so I, I get to a point where I'm like, oh no, this isn't any good. I don't know if I want to write it this way. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I need some assistance on that. I, yeah. I don't know. That's that's kind of how I felt about my yes. my Port Chatham book. Is it wasn't so much released as it escaped. <laughs> well, the Saint Germain one just hasn't escaped yet. You know, <laughs> uh, I just need to sit down and do it. I I guess. Uh, if anyone doesn't know who that is, Count St. Germain is said to have been immortal or said to be immortal. Um, 
And so let's see, he was a real person. He was a French diplomat, uh, kind of came onto the scene. In f- I tracked him back to about 1690s, 1680, late 1680s, something like that. And then like, I have him tracked through the 1800s. Um, and I think the most recent sightings where there's like a, a group of sightings is in the 60s, the 1960s. And he's always like the same age. Um, he almost stopped the Seven Years' War like three years early, but the French war marshal would have lost a lot of money, so that didn't happen. Uh, thus, it's called the Seven Years' War because it lasted seven years. So he's kind of like a, he's like a Highlander. He just keeps popping up all over the place, and he's always the same age. <laughs> he, he goes away for a little while, then he comes back. And yeah, um, and he, he's super fascinating because he has so many different facets. And like he was a rival musically to Han Bell. And which, I mean, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was like an alchemist and, and a chemist. I guess alchemy is kind of a pre-chemistry is how I imagine it. Like, you know, it's a precursor to chemistry or modern chemistry. Uh, he was he was designing steam engines before steam engines were really a thing. Uh, he he knew all the nobility and royalty and stuff of Europe um, in the 18th century. So it, he's yeah. just all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, you know, it's not maybe the topic of this, but <laughs> I can always talk about that too. Maybe uh, it's yeah. like uh, what did they say in Men in Black? Uh, he didn't die; he just went home. Maybe he was an alien. <laughs> I, because I grew up on a steady diet of vampire novels, like Anne Rice stuff, I like to imagine that maybe he was a vampire, but, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, talking about uh, being able to get your book in conventions, uh, let's uh, talk about the Boreal Bigfoot Expo just real quick. I think we've got some dates nailed down and a venue. Uh, yeah, we, okay. So the Boreal Bigfoot Expo, this will be, uh, the second one. It's going to occur, uh, on June. Hold up. I don't have my calendar right in front of me. Let me just click through on my computer. Uh, it is June 17th and 18th in 2023. Uh, so it's a two day event up here in Fairbanks. It'll be held at the Carlson Center. Um, we, we really haven't nailed down our guest speakers yet. So I, I can't promise right. anything in the yeah. way of guest speakers. Um, though I think you wanted to be a guest speaker, right? Yes. I believe, uh, I'm going to be there possibly Rob Roy. Um, at least he'll be there hopefully selling his wares. If not, uh, speaking maybe on area a, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have some, we'll have some cool stuff lined up. And I think Steven majors wants to come back up. Uh, he's with, was it extreme North extreme West? expeditions yeah yeah. Expedition. yeah but uh yeah save the dates june 18th 17th through 18th so yep. just uh, get that out there and let people know that's that's uh a date they need to to keep in mind and uh they can show up there and they can uh meet both of us uh get copies of everybody's book <laughs> hopefully no, i don't i don't know if i'm going to be able to sign stuff because i'm 
going to be run, running the convention. Yeah. <laughs> one of the committee yeah. members. Uh, so it's kind of hard to get stuff signed when yeah. you're trying to make sure that everything is <clears throat> running smoothly. Um, I know that we're going to have a lot of displays this next year. <clears throat> so we're, we've really uh, amped up our, our goals on increasing displays and, and making it a little more visually impressive. Uh, we are hoping to have some films maybe to show uh, documentaries or whatever on, or, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be a documentary. It could be like a student film about like a Bigfoot trying to break into a cabin in a horror movie style or something like we're open to a lot of different possibilities. <laughs> um, we just, we think it'd be really cool if there was some sort of film aspect to it. I know UAF has, um, has a film department now. Uh, so maybe, maybe we'll get someone on board with that. Who knows? Uh, what else? I don't, I don't know. I think we're hoping for like some piggyback events. Um, so if any local people want to have something at their locations, we'll mention their thing as long as they mention our thing and, you know, piggyback event. Yeah. Sounds, uh, sounds awesome. I'm, uh, I'm excited for it. I can't wait. It's, uh, I don't have any plans, uh, as far as next year goes, except for that. Really. That's the only, uh, that's the only convention slash expo that I really have, uh, plans to attend so far. But uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, I, yeah. I recently saw uh, Adam Davies down at uh, a Utah convention called Phenomicon. Um, and he wants to come back up because he was up for the first one, uh, which was a big surprise to all of us. And he wants to come back up and be a guest speaker. So awesome. maybe we'll yeah. have him. Uh, it's not 100% sh- sure yet. So don't go spreading that around but <laughs> not, not yet <laughs> but maybe maybe out of yeah. will show up yeah i uh, i want to maybe combine it with um an expedition next year like come up do the, well kind of like we did with the first year where we went up to the north slope uh with adam and steven and uh, i kind of want to do the same thing maybe next year where i come up do the do the expo and then maybe head out and uh, do an expedition. I really want to get out to um, the um, Manly Hot Springs area. I, I hear there's a lot Bigfoot wise going on up there. So I kind of want to go up there and spend a couple of days and look around. Uh, yeah. Th- I mean, the interior, we have like this huge boreal forest, which is why it's called the Boreal Bigfoot Expo. Um, and I, I think it's just a really great place for Bigfoot. I mean, we have a lot of bear up here. And according to Jeff Meldrum, for every 100, you know, black bear, or I, I wonder if that goes into grizzlies as well. Uh, but for every 100 black bears, you have possibly one, one Sasquatch. And that's just like a, his estimate. You know, it's not, not 100%. <laughs> um and so i mean like alaska we have we have a ton of bear uh up here we have various species we have a lot of empty space we have a lot of food that they could be foraging and and eating and we have small animals and larger animals and you know we have 
places that they could live and make homes and stuff. So I, I think the interior of Alaska is really a great spot for them. Especially, I mean, in the hills here, we have, we just have so much stuff. We have so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, like we, we said a couple of times, uh, today, you know, Alaska is so big that unless you've really been here and seen a good portion of it, it's kind of hard to grasp how, just how big it is. And I'm, I know I'm convinced there are sections in this state where no human being has ever set foot, you know, maybe, I mean, sure they've probably flown over it, but as far as getting down on the ground and walking around in it, I'm sure there's lots of areas that probably haven't seen um, a person and a person hasn't seen it. I I think there's still... Uh, trying to map the state like in detail i i don't think they have finished that since we've become a state yeah like, well i mean it, it just uh, you know I, I drove from anchorage uh, to homer yesterday and uh just coming through you know the pass and stuff you know if you look off to the side of the road and just see how just rugged the terrain is and how much um you know, just how thick the foliage is. It's just, man, it's, it's pretty daunting. Like, you know, if you're like, Oh, I'd like to walk up to the top of that hill and get a good view. And just to look and see how much effort that would take and, and how big, how, how uh, daunting it is. It's amazing. Like, and there's places like that all over the state, which is just huge. And there could be anything in, in those thickets and those uh, pockets where it's just um, almost impossible to get to. Yeah, I, I always, you know, I, I thought a, a good spot would be like the White Mountains, which is just north of Fairbanks, um, because it's the same sort of thing. It, there are trails, but outside of those trails, I, I don't think there's been a lot of people out that way. It's all just yeah. natural resources land, like State of Alaska Department of Natural Resources, I think. Yeah. People, people are creatures of habit. There's not a ton of, uh, trail breaking going on anymore. You know, a lot of people stick to the, to the trails and, you know, occasionally a hunter will go out and, and, you know, go to a new place or something like that. But for the most part, you know, especially with hunting people, less and less people are hunting every year and, uh, you've got less people going out into the woods and the ones that do go out, they have their, you know, they have their places they go and they don't really go anywhere else and they don't, they don't do a lot of trail breaking. So yeah, it's, uh, it's not as far fetched as people think it is that there's something out there that we haven't really caught up with. I, I actually, okay. So one of our, one of, one of our committee members, uh, cause I, this year I kind of made Larry get onto our committee because <laughs> I wanted his opinion on stuff. Uh, but one of our committee members, Michael Thompson, he's out, of toke and there's i found that there's a lot of stories coming out of toke and i was kind of surprised by that um i ventured down that way and in toke and like uh, if you follow the alaska highway you hit tana cross and if you go south towards gakona um where harp is uh that's a toke cutoff highway like there's there's a lot of a lot of stories out that way. And I was just very surprised by that. And people are just like, Oh yeah, I've seen them cross the road. And, and apparently there's a lot of Bigfoot that hang out in Wrangell St. Elias national park. 
again, like that's, that's not a heavily ventured into national park. It's not like Denali where they have tour buses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people I, I think have gone to the south end of St. Elias National Park. I don't think there's a ton of, personally, my opinion, I don't think there's a ton of Bigfoot in or around Denali. I think they're, because Denali is a lot, there's a lot of open space around Denali, not a lot of, uh, you know, thick tree cover. Um, I think that's probably um, not a good spot to go squatching. Uh, it's beautiful, a lot of wildlife, but I don't think there's any squatch there. And that's just my personal opinion. I think there's some areas not too far from Denali that are prime squatching habitat. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, Wrangell, St. Elias, there's a ton of missing people out of there. That's part of the Alaska Triangle. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that Bigfoot are responsible for them, but I mean, it's, it's some unforgiving land. And, uh, you know, if you're going to go in there, it's, uh, you're taking your life in your own hands. Was well, I was told by multiple people out of, uh, Christachina, which is right off the tote cutoff highway there, um, that there was a, that there's a family of Bigfoot or a tribe of Bigfoot or a group of Bigfoot depends on who's telling you the story, who lives in or it lives around the backside of one of the mountains uh that you can that you can see and i forgot which one i forgot what the name is of of the mountain but uh i could point it out on a map <laughs> <laughs> i don't have a yeah. map in front of me i'm sorry i'm sorry but uh yeah there's supposed to be something back in there but it's on this north side kind of more on the north side of wrangle st elias national park and there is a road that goes out there. You have to, you have to fuel up before you get onto Nebesna road. Um, so you either have to go like 13 or 14 miles South to posties, or you have to go 13 or 14 miles North to, uh, there, there's like a little, it's not even a lodge. It's, uh, just like a quick, quick stop kind of gas station out in the middle of nowhere looks a little uh if you've never seen something like that before it probably looks a little sketchy horror movie like um but you know i, I feel up there no problem yeah. <laughs> uh, other but there's no there's no gas along the road that goes out there and if your vehicle can't make a 300 mile journey without fueling then you might want to take some extra gas. Yeah. Yeah. So folks, uh, come to Alaska and see UFOs and Bigfoot. And I guess, uh, this is, this is the best, uh, Alaska tourist, uh, <laughs> tourist info. This is where you come for the real deal right here is Alaska. You can hear all about the strange things if, going on in Alaska. As long as you can, and you can venture out to these places as long as you know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm always, I'm a big fan of, um, personal locator beacons and, and firearms and bear spray. I, I rarely go anywhere without all three of those items. Um, uh, so, I don't always have bear spray, but I usually have, I, I'm a blade person. <laughs> so I usually have like a knife and a, I have like this mini machete. It's like a half size machete. Uh, and maybe I have a gun on me. Maybe I don't, but at least I have some knives. And uh, with my fencing background, I 
I'm always overconfident that I can win. Yeah. We had a pretty good sized black bear in the, in the backyard the other day. I just got done eating dinner and I was walking past the window and I'm like, Hey, there's a bear in the backyard. So my wife came and we, we got some pretty decent video footage of it. It's on the, um, Alaska watch, uh, Instagram. I think you can see that, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. There's, uh, all kinds of wildlife up here. And, uh, if you don't see a UFO or a Bigfoot, you'll probably see a moose or bear or something. So yeah, pack your bags I, and get on up here. <laughs> I think I'm actually more afraid of running into a grizzly bear or a moose when I'm out. So I, I try not to go alone. And that's what, that's been like one of my biggest issues is, um, uh, kind of an introvert person and I don't always have friends who are around or readily available. And do I want to go out into the woods by myself? We have a lot of, we have a lot of bears around here and we have a lot of moose. Um, funny. I, we've had wolves come in and like, like the outskirts of town kind of come in uh, and attack dogs and stuff, but I'm not really scared of the wolves. I'm it's the bears and the moose. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've I've been trying to go moose hunting for the last two years now. And I'm, uh, I, I've, I've, I'm always like, well, I I need to find somebody to take me hunting or go hunting with me. And I haven't found like the person I was going to go with this year, he ended up moving away. So, uh, I'm, my wife's like telling me I can't go by myself. So I'm kind of in the same boat. I gotta, I gotta find somebody to, uh, to go out with me that'll take me moose hunting. <laughs> All right. Well, well I, let's go ahead. I was going to say, I, I know some people in your area. So after all this is over, I'll, I'll share with yeah. you. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, let's, uh, let's call it good. I think we've, um, we, we, we've pitched Alaska to, to those interested in UFOs, Bigfoot and, uh, wildlife in general. So, uh, Anyway, pick up a copy of Saucers of the North, A History of UFOs in Alaskan Airspace. You can pick that up on Amazon. And uh, Jesse, you have any uh, social media or websites or anything that uh, you want to tell people about? Uh, my author website is jessiedesmond.com. I spell my name with an I-E. Uh, so J-E-S-S-I-E. And I, I have an author site on Facebook that you can find if you just search my name. Um, it should come up. Uh, if you don't find my author site, you'll probably find my personal Facebook site. <laughs> um, I'm pretty easy to find online. So you just have to type in my name. Yeah. I will put uh, links to those in the show notes. So guys, uh, check it out. It's a, it's a great book. It's a very comprehensive history of UFOs in Alaska. And, uh, if you're interested in UFOs or Alaska, uh, it's definitely worth your time. Thanks for coming on, Jesse. Please buy it. <laughs> yeah. Please buy it. I, Please I, buy want it. To, uh, I want to possibly build a house or something. So please buy it. Maybe you'll help me get there. <laughs> uh, All right. Thanks for coming know. on, Jesse. <clears throat> All right. Thanks. Bye.